Good morning, church. Happy birthday, church. If you're wondering what all the balloons are about, we are turning five years old as a church family today. So we have occasion to celebrate. We have occasion to give God credit. His grace has been upon this community. We have not been a perfect people by any stretch of the imagination, and yet he continues and continues and continues to come through for his people and to walk us forward in repentance and to walk us forward in rejoicing in who he is and how he has given himself for us. So just by way of orientation to the building, if you're new with us this morning, we're glad that you're here. We have some coffee in the back. We also, just to celebrate this morning, have some Italian sodas over here as well. You're welcome to help yourselves to those things. But I want to, um, before you do that, I want to call your attention this morning to, uh, to a video uh, that we have put together that, that features our church family, the people and the stories within this church that just, I think, illuminates for us the ways that God has been faithful to us, and not just faithful to us, but very, very, very gracious to us. To be gracious to someone means that you give them something they don't deserve. And in every way, shape, or form, that is who our God has shown himself to be this morning. So would you go ahead and kill the lights, and we're going to roll this video, and then I'll jump back up here and pray. I continue to be surprised at how we got in on a community like this. It shocks me that a guy like me and my family, that we would be invited in uh, to a community who loves one another fiercely, who is committed to one another, and who are actively working to see the grace of God in their own lives and in one another's lives and call that out to the glory of God. One way I've experienced God's grace is through the meaningful friendships and connections he's provided for us uh, since moving to Post Falls. In the gentle way that he's revealed my sin and weakness that I could not see. From the Lord's forgiveness in my life and also from those that I know that I've hurt I've experienced God's grace in the way that he has provided for me and my family. By the Lord providing all of life as our church home. And through that, my husband and I have gained some of our most dear friendships that we've had in our entire life. Uh, over the last couple of years, our family has needed an abundance of prayers, patience, and helping hands. And the Lord has never left us and he's taken care of us through his people. We have really enjoyed all of life for the atmosphere of love and grace mixed with great doctrine. We have seen that work out in missional communities, kids ministry, and with youth ministry, where the goal is to create committed followers of Christ. I have experienced God's grace by reading the Bible. I have experienced God's grace uh, over the past few years in my growing dependence. Um, someone really wise once told me that it takes more maturity to receive than it does to give. And I've definitely experienced God's grace through learning that in my weakness, his strength is perfected. Our church is highly relational. Uh, we love one another. We like to be together. We're also, I think, we're growing as a truth-telling community. I think we're growing more and more courageous with one another as our trust builds. Uh, we're recognizing that, that, that all of life is a safe place to take off the mask that you've been living with. We want to see people get in on the grace that we've received. God's graces to me has been the way that people who were like strangers to me when I first walked through the doors of all of life have become like family. And the cultivation of strong relationships with other believers that began at a time in my life where that was what my heart probably desired the least and he knew that that was what I needed the most. I've experienced God's grace in becoming a father and knowing my heavenly father in deeper ways than I ever thought I could. By doing manly chores like mowing the lawn. Being in community with other believers and seeing deep, strong friendships grow out of it. And his provision, providing physical rest, um, spiritual rest, 
emotional rest and relational rest. His creation, his forgiveness of my sins, his gift of salvation, and the bright future he has prepared for me. Just his presence and his patience with me as a sinner and um, always, always being there by my side and reminding me constantly day by day that he's never going to leave me and that he's constantly here fighting for me every minute. Church family, I'm convinced more and more and more that the best thing that we can possibly do is relaxing into the grace of God. You know that moment when you give a loved one or a friend a hug and you're kind of, you're a little bit tense as you come into the hug, you're just gonna hug them and then you're gonna move right out of the hug, but they hold on a little bit and you find yourself kind of relaxing into that embrace and there's a sense that washes over you that you are secure and deeply loved and wanted by that person. I think that for us to relax into the grace of God, that's what it looks like for us. It looks like letting our guard down as we are relaxing into all that He has said about us, he loves us, He wants us, He's adopted us, He pursues us. He'll never turn us away. His grace is upon us. And as that grace is upon us, and as we uh, relax into that sense of security and just want by Him directed right at us, it teaches us to want what God wants. We're aligned to Him and we find that there's something internal happening in us where He is renewing us and He is remaking us and the things that we begin to desire are naturally the things that He desires for us and other people too. He wants you. May we relax into His grace more and more in the coming years. We've experienced God's grace by having him tell us no when we were really hoping for a yes. And what we found out was that he was just leading us into a direction and a place where he wanted us to be, which is a far better place. Through the freedom of confession and repentance, knowing that I am fully known and fully loved by God and God's people. I have experienced God's grace over the last five years at All of Life Church because some of you walked through the doors a complete stranger and now five years later, you're like family. From being a very broken, hard-hearted person to feeling His grace and having it rekindle my marriage with my wife, Tracy, and her patience and understanding to uh, moving up here and finding All of Life Church and making tremendous friends who also walk with Christ. And we look forward to growing with you guys for the years to come. Ways I've experienced God's grace in the last five years is through His patience with me, kind of bumbling about in life. I've come to know and experience Him as a loving and a merciful Father that I am always safe around. And that changes who I am towards myself, how I am with my wife and with my friends, and it's changed the entirety of my life. Isn't that good? Just your stories seeing what God is doing in individual hearts and lives is captivating. It's absolutely captivating. And it was so reassuring to me as I got to see that, that video and as I got to just hear some of those stories come out. This is why we're, this is what we're in it for. We're in it to see the glory of God and the grace of God transform entire trajectories, transform family histories, transform ways of relating and ways of operating. And the more and more and more that we experience and relax into God's grace, I think the more and more we become and kind of live into this reality as a compelling community, a community that is open to sufferers, open to people who... Uh, open to people who are grieving and who are hurting and who just have royally screwed things up because who hasn't? Father, your grace is upon us. We love you. This is an act of worship this morning. And so as we sing this next song, may uh, the ways that you have been so, so kind to us, 
May they dawn on us. May they sit on us. May they embed themselves within us. And would you just call us out toward you in worship? The point is not all of life church is awesome. The point is our great God and Savior is incredible and worthy of all glory and honor and praise and dominion forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me this morning as we sing this last song? Go ahead and take a seat. Again, good morning. Glad that you are here with us. My name is Jared. I have the privilege of pastoring all of Life Church, and we are in our second week into the Gospel of Matthew. So we are going to dive in. Last week, we provided some journals for you, ESV scripture journals that have the text of Matthew on the left page, and then just blank pages on the right with some lines that you can write, you can take notes. These are a really good way for you to interact with the text, to circle things, to write in the margin. Maybe in a way that's more free than how you would write in your own Bible, although I would definitely encourage you to write in your Bibles and to record what God has been teaching you over the years. We have just a handful of them left, like five or six of them, and they're on this back table in the back. So you got to be greedy in this moment. You got permission. Get up and grab one of those in the back there. I've got a another case ordered, so they'll be here, I think, Friday. So we'll have some more for you next week as well. Today's, uh, one thing real quick, if you grab one of those, write your name in it, please. Grab a sticker or something that will like customize it. You know that that belongs to you and mark it as your own. There it is right there. That's what I'm talking about. You know how you have stickers and you just got like, I have this thing. I want to stick it on something, but I don't have something that I want to put it on. So maybe the Matthew journal will be it for you. Today's, uh, like I said, today's uh, message, it, it is the second in our series as we're getting into the Gospel of Matthew, and we're just going to be here as long as it, as long as it takes. Uh, we started last week with a genealogy. Matthew's Gospel started with a genealogy. A lot of times as we're approaching the life of the most significant man who has ever lived, and we open up our Bibles and we start in the very beginning of the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, and we lay our eyes on the page in chapter one, and we're like, a genealogy. This is what we find. Last week, I tried to just pull out why Matthew started with a genealogy. Why is it so significant? And so I'm just going to recount my four uh, points from last week, just, uh, just in title only. And I want to point you back to our podcast and back to the message last week if you want to um, learn more about uh, the, the kind of some of the literary features and, and what Matthew is doing in this gospel as well as this genealogy. So why in the world did he open with a genealogy? Number one, because the genealogy shows that Jesus' story is anchored in real history. He opens with a genealogy to show that Jesus' story is anchored in real history. Number two, because it summarizes the storyline of the entire Hebrew Bible. And so Matthew here is writing to converts from Judaism to Christianity. They have been steeped in their Old Testaments. And Matthew wants to show them how Jesus is the promised Messiah my third point last week was that this genealogy actually highlights the inclusive nature of God's family. There were some incredibly uh, messed up people and circumstances covered and, uh, and, and like symbolized by this genealogy. And then last, this genealogy reveals that Jesus is the hope of the world. And so now this morning, as we progress in Matthew chapter one, Matthew begins to, to take his readers deeper into the story. It's a gripping story of rescue, and he wants to present it as such. Does anyone in the room remember baby Jessica, 1987, October 14th, 1987, baby Jessica McClure. She was this young 18-month-old being babysat in the backyard of her aunt, and her mom was one of the people watching her. And the phone rang. Remember when they were attached to the wall in your house? The phone rang, and her mom had to go inside and pick up the phone. And so they left baby Jessica and some of the other kids unattended. And she wandered off, and she fell into an eight-inch wide opening. It was a well in the ground, and she fell down upright and lodged kind of with her leg up against her body 22 feet underground in this well. 
And they begin going out and looking for baby Jessica. I think we've got, yeah, we've got some pictures on the screen that'll maybe take you back if you followed this at that time. Uh, They were looking for her and they ended up hearing some whimpers and some cries from in this well. And so, uh, so America really was gripped and glued to our television screens. I remember this. I was a nine year old boy at this time as this live coverage just around the clock was following this rescue story of this sweet girl. The best minds in America were called on. And what they ended up doing was they ended up drilling a parallel shaft right next to her, 29 feet in underground. And then they they drilled a horizontal shaft underneath her and they extracted her from down below. During this time, it took 56 hours to get her out. That's over two days' time to get her out. During this time, they dropped a microphone down into the shaft, and they, would, they picked up that she was singing lullabies. She was whimpering and crying. She was talking. And so all of America heard these little snippets during that time. After 56 hours underground, they pulled her out to safety on live TV, and America exhaled. And America rejoiced in this moment. It was really incredible. Uh, Stories of rescue are the most compelling stories told. And they're even more compelling when they feel miraculous and against all odds. When somebody has been sought out, when somebody has been pursued at great cost and finally rescued, literally brought home. That's the story that Matthew is taking us into in Matthew's gospel this morning. So we're going to read God's word. Turn to uh, Matthew's gospel, chapter 1, verse 18, either in your scripture journals or we have black Bibles around the room as well. Uh, Page 757, I believe, in the black Bibles around the room. Matthew, chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed or pledged, To Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So he's, now he's reaching back into the Old Testament, quoting the prophet Isaiah here from Isaiah seven fourteen. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife... But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. Father, open your word to us. Holy Spirit, make it clear to us this morning. Teach your people. Help us to respond in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. One thing that we cannot miss in this story is the miraculous. It's one thing that you can't miss as you just read this passage here. You cannot miss the miraculous. Now, if we only see Jesus' birth, this story, through the lens of our own experience, it is not easy for us to believe at all. Because what we have here is angels speaking on multiple occasions to multiple people. What we have here is a young girl giving birth to a child with no involvement of a man whatsoever. We have a prophet from old, 700 years prior, speaking of what would happen and the exact circumstances around it. Now, it's not easy for us to to just blindly accept this storyline, and I don't think that we should blindly accept this storyline. I think we should look into the text and we should study it and we should seek to understand it. Now, there are some people in our culture, uh, I quoted last week some different people, whether in the modern ages or ancient times, and what they believed about Jesus. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to quote a few uh, people this morning around what they believe 
negatively around the virgin birth. A man named Nicholas Kristof, writing for the New York Times in his op-ed, he said this, the faith in the virgin birth reflects the way American Christianity is becoming less intellectual and more mystical. So what he's saying is American Christianity around the virgin birth has a special kind of flavor that's, unatta- that's unattached to what they believed in ancient times, which is, a, uh, in my view, and I think in the historical view for sure, a misunderstanding of what the church has believed throughout the centuries. Thomas Jefferson, you know his name. The day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus, by the supreme being as his father, in the womb of a virgin, will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. Minerva was a Greek goddess in Greek mythology. So Thomas Jefferson is saying that the virgin birth is going to be classed as mythology in popular thought. And then Richard Dawkins, a famous representative of the new atheism, he says this, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, even the Old Testament miracles are all freely used for religious propaganda, and they are very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. So they are challenging the virgin birth here. They have looked into it in the ways that they could, and they have dismissed it, and they have regarded it and classed it as fable. What we're doing this morning is we're getting into the ancient texts, and we're looking at what the people who are closest to Jesus believed about these circumstances. Okay, What Matthew wants his readers, wants his original audience to understand and to know is that Jesus' birth took place by miracle. He wants his readers to not misunderstood that to not misunderstand that this is a miraculous occasion. This is a miraculous event, not explainable by human means. In fact, it took place by the involvement of the Holy Spirit or the initiation of the Holy Spirit through a virgin, through a girl who had not been with a man. In verse 18 here, four people in one verse, Matthew, he names. He names Jesus here. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be child from who? From the Holy Spirit. What Matthew is doing here is he's setting up the first instance that we're going to see in Matthew's gospel of promise and fulfillment. Look down in verse 22. He'll say, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah. And if you look in your Bible, you'll see these these margins and these these different snippets of the Old Testament. You'll see it a couple of times. It actually occurs three times in chapter two, a time in chapter three, a time in chapter four. What Matthew is doing is he's showing these Jewish converts how Jesus is the promised Messiah in the Old Testament here. What Matthew also does in, in introing Jesus and Mary and Joseph and the Holy Spirit here is he wants us to understand that his birth came about through a very unusual and unexpected player in the storyline. Typically, it only takes a mom and a dad to produce a child, but here we have a mom and a dad and the Holy Spirit. He wants his readers to understand that, that, that the Holy Spirit is the initiating agent in Jesus's conception. As she was found to be, Matthew says, she was found to be with child from who? From the Holy Spirit. And this was before, clearly, her and Joseph came together. Now, it's not hard for us to imagine the virgin birth. It's not hard for us to imagine these circumstances. We have a capacity to imagine all kinds of things. The human mind is great in that way. I just watched some of Jurassic Park yesterday with Gideon, right? We can imagine all kinds of things in our worldview. But I do agree that it can be hard to believe this story is historical record. It can be hard for us to believe that it actually happened that it is truth with a capital T. Now, this is one of the reasons that Matthew began his story, began the story of Jesus Christ with a genealogy. 
It did not begin as fable. It did not begin with once upon a time. It began with a genealogy. It began with a family tree. It began with a record of real people in real history that all of Israel has believed in and understood to have existed. Verse 18, also, it connects. So the birth of Jesus Christ connects with Matthew chapter 1 as well, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You remember last week, the word for genealogy is what? Genesis. What does that sound like? It sounds like Genesis. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the book of the genealogy, the book of the Genesis. Matthew was taking his Jewish readers back to Genesis. Verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ, the word birth, what word is it? It's Genesis. The Genesis of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Genesis means origins. This is the origin story of Jesus. And so Matthew continues telling the origin story of Jesus through the lens of Genesis. Now, in the Genesis story, in Genesis chapter 1, at the first early moments of creation, who was there hovering over the formless waters in Genesis 1? The Holy Spirit, specifically. Who does Matthew here present hovering over Mary's womb? The Holy Spirit. This is a new beginning. This is a sort of new creation. And Matthew is setting it up as so through Jesus Christ. Luke's gospel will take us right into the details of this. Luke's Luke's gospel uh, presents this angel who came to Mary and announced this child in her womb. Um, he, He presents this angel as the angel Gabriel. And the angel Gabriel said this to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, literally hover over you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. A commentator on Matthew, he says, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God appears as the agent of God's activity, especially in the Holy Spirit. He's the agent of God's activity, especially in creation and in the giving of life. And this commentator says, thus, the divine initiative here, the Holy Spirit being the one conceiving the child in Mary's womb, is made clear. The Spirit of God is bringing the Son of God into humanity through Mary. The eternal Son, the one who is divine, who has eternally existed with Father and Holy Spirit from the beginning, is taking on flesh. He's adding humanity to his divinity in this moment. The new Adam has arrived. Who was the first Adam in the garden? Who was his father? God. The new Adam, Jesus Christ, who is his father? God. Adam was supernaturally created in the garden. Jesus is supernaturally created, conceived in the womb. This is a new creation. This is a new beginning. This is not accomplished by human effort or by human ability. That is what Matthew is wanting his original readers to understand and not only to understand but to believe. Al Mohler says this about the the virgin birth. He says, if Jesus was not born of a virgin... Who was his father? There is no answer that will leave the gospel intact. The virgin birth explains how Christ could be both God and man. It explains how he was without sin and that the entire work of salvation is God's gracious act. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, he had a human father. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, the Bible teaches a lie. A man named Millard Erickson. If you're looking, if you're, if you're about to name a child and you want names, you could go with Millard here, or you could go with some of the names in the genealogy. If we do not, he, this is what he says, if we do not hold to the virgin birth, despite the fact that the Bible asserts it, then we have compromised the authority of the Bible 
And there is in principle no reason why we should hold to its other teachings. Thus, rejecting the virgin birth has implications that reach far beyond the doctrine itself. Does that make sense? So step into the scene with Mary as a bystander here. Imagine this young Jewish girl. She's been dreaming of her wedding. She's been dreaming of her future. She's been dreaming of her husband for quite some time. Her parents have heard of this young man nearby, a man named Joseph. They believe that Joseph would potentially be good for her. And so they meet her, his parents and he comes from a respectable family. And this man, Joseph, uh, he shows promise. He's a carpenter. He has integrity. He'll be able to provide a good life for their daughter. The way that ancient marriages happened was they were arranged by your parents. How about that? Mom and dad, pick your spouse. We're like, I don't know about that. That's how it was done at that time. These parents, they arrange this marriage between Mary and Joseph, and something called a betrothal occurs here. The families have pledged to one another. They have committed. The deal is done. An ancient betrothal, it's different from a modern engagement. I'll quote again from a man named R.T. France here. He says this, In Jewish law, betrothal, which lasted about one year, so this betrothal period lasts about a year, it was much more than our modern engagement. It was a binding contract, terminable or, or able to be terminated only by death or by a divorce as with a full marriage. The man in a betrothal, at the time of betrothal, he's already husband, but the woman, already wife, still remains in her father's house. And the marriage is completed when the husband takes the betrothed to his home in a big public ceremony. And this is the point at which husband and wife come together and live fully with one another, the point at which intercourse could begin between them. So put yourself in Mary's shoes in this moment. An announcement like this changes everything for you. The things that you have been dreaming of, you've been picturing your life, you've been picturing your future, and it is disrupted on a massive scale in this moment. Fairy tale in some ways turns to nightmare for you, or it's very, it very certainly could. In Old Testament law, the, the penalty for unchastity or fornication or adultery, which is what Mary was accused of here, is death. And so the news, as it first comes to Mary, it could very well threaten great loss for her, loss of family, loss of reputation, loss of wages, loss of a secure home, loss of her love, Joseph, as he no longer trusts her, loss of an earthly father or the possibility of it to care for your boy. But we know from Luke's gospel and from Matthew's gospel here, but that is not her posture. She says, let, let your servant do according to your will, Lord. And so her posture is one of humility before the Lord. Think about Joseph as he's just received this news. Matthew's gospel tells us that Joseph was a just man. You'll see it there in verse 19. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put Mary to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So he had an opportunity to divorce her publicly. He had an opportunity to publicly shame her, but being a just man in his hurt and in his brokenness here, he determines in his heart to divorce her quietly, to spare her, to cover her in some ways. This news is terrible. It's the worst kind of news. It's embarrassing news. It could potentially have his neighbors whispering about why Joseph turned to another man. Imagine the shame in this moment. Imagine the betrayal in this moment. Shattered dreams. I'm sorry. For some of you in this room, you don't have to imagine it. You've lived it. It's become a part of your story. You need to know that God sees you. You need to know that he is with you. He's aiming his restorative love directly at you. He's strengthening you to endure. He's strengthening you to move through betrayal and into health. 
And I want you to know, because he wants you to know, that you are not alone. Look at how Joseph responds. His character's fixed. Matthew tells us he is a just man. He does want to pursue divorce, but he's unwilling to put Mary to shame. Even in his pain, Joseph here is serving her. Even in his pain, he's serving her. This line in verse 20 is extraordinary. Look at this. But as he considered these things, but as Joseph considered this news, how much time do you think elapsed in this moment? We have no real way of knowing. But the time period here between considering and the time period between having a powerful dream probably wasn't short. At least it didn't feel short because in this kind of grief, hours, minutes rather, they feel like hours. Hours can feel like days in this kind of grief. And I think there's something important for us to learn uh, from Joseph's example here, even from that line in verse 20 there. But as he considered these things, when you are hurt, when you do not understand, when you are perplexed in the stuff of your everyday life, it is wise for you and I to take time. It is wise for you and I to kind of push back from the instance and to determine no rash action here. Not only no rash action, but no shutdown. Or at least guarding our hearts against shutdown. To remain open before the Lord. To consider the things of our life. The pain, the grief, the news that's come to us. To consider them, not just in our own minds and a sort of praying to self. But to consider them before the Lord as we come to Him for wisdom. As we seek wise counsel from His people. As this kind of news comes to us, it's wise for us to consider, to take time. An angel does come to Joseph and assures him in this dream that his bride has not betrayed him, but she's telling the truth. And in fact, God has actually chosen them to bring about a miracle child. And so the miraculous nature of Jesus' first human birth here and his second birth, his resurrection, they're central to this storyline. The miraculous nature of how he came to be, took on flesh in the first place, but also how he rose from the grave after dying for our sins and being buried. They are central to this storyline. These miracles matter. The angelic messengers matter. The involvement of the Holy Spirit matters. The prophecy long told before, it matters the unity of mom and dad here, the family staying together matters. Look at verses 22 and 23. Matthew will say, all of this, it took place for a reason. What was the reason? To fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then Matthew says, he quotes Isaiah and he says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now what's interesting here about this angel's prediction is there are no ultrasounds in Matthew and Mary's day. And so this angel announces this prophecy from beforehand and says, Gender is going to be a boy. There will be no surprise there, and you are to give him a specific name, Jesus, because he'll save his people from his sins, and Emmanuel here, which is a title that means God with us. This is what Matthew wants us to really, really, really hone in on. The compassionate God who directs history and directs people is guiding this process. And the story needs to be the kind of story that can only be explained because God is behind it. That's why the miracles matter. We need to understand that he is the God of the impossible and he is the one moving in human circumstances. This prophecy given by Isaiah, it was given, Isaiah lived about 700, 740 years before Jesus was born, before he ever took on flesh. And this prophecy came, a lot of times Old Testament prophecies work in this way. There'll be, there'll be, there will be prophecy that will determine what will take place in the original hearer's context, but oftentimes those prophecies have a bit of a double meaning. And so they'll mean something for the here and now when they were given, but they'll also extend way out into the future. And that's 
especially what, how messianic prophecies work. And that's what this is given by Isaiah. It's for the here and now, but it's looking forward in time as well to Jesus coming. And so this is a thick messianic prophecy right here. And, and Isaiah will continue to hit it in chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9 of the book in the Old Testament that goes by his name. What we need to understand is the Messiah will come in a way that only God could accomplish. And so as his people, as his church, we're placing ourselves in the care of a God who does the impossible. We're placing ourselves in the care of the God who comes through the God who comes through for you, you and I. And we need to understand this. The way that God comes through for you and I, they are not predictable. The ways, I should say rather. The ways that he comes through for you and I are not predictable and they cannot be managed by us. They need to be accepted by us. He comes on his terms to us. We often know just what God should do in our circumstances, and yet those things aren't actually what we often need. And as we look back in our histories, we can see that storyline that God is writing. Hannah said it in, the, in herself in the video. She wanted one thing, but God gave her another. And now looking back, she recognizes how gracious he has been to her. Matthew wants his readers to know that Jesus' birth took place miraculously, but also that Jesus' birth took place for a cosmic purpose. Jesus' birth took place for a cosmic purpose. We're going to spend the rest of our time this morning together looking at the two names for the Messiah. Name, a personal name, Jesus or Yeshua, as well as a title, Emmanuel. In Joseph's dream, this angel directs him. I forget most of my dreams, but some of my dreams are so compelling that I remember them. No doubt this dream, Joseph did not forget in any way, shape, or form. It altered the course of not only his history, but human history here. It is too real. This angel in the dream gives him a command. You shall name this boy Jesus for, purpose clause, for he will save his people from what? From their sins. From the penalty due for our rebellion against God in the first place. This, here, this name that he gives here, it's not actually Jesus as we have made it. It is Yeshua. The name is Yeshua and the English translation is Jesus. So yes, it's Jesus, but in the Hebrew it is Yeshua. And it's a name that's anchored in Jewish history. Jewish names were often hyphenated sentences. They were abbreviated sentences. And sometimes in child labor, the mom would, in her um, joy or in her grief or whatever was going on in the moment, she would utter something. It would be some sort of a sentence. They would condense that and they, they would name the child that, or they would name these child their children based on what God had done for them or how they had seen God show up. When we had uh, Gideon and when we had the girls, Meredith and I were, were specifically looking at um, people in our history, in our life, and we, we wanted our children to um, embody in some way things that we, values that we greatly respected or esteemed, as well as people that we greatly respected or um, or still do respect and esteem. So when we named Gideon, his name is Gideon Thomas. Gideon means man of valor, or it can be translated mighty warrior, man of strength. And his middle name means man of truth or seeker of truth. So we wanted Gideon to be mighty and strong, and we wanted him to seek truth above all. We did the same kinds of things with our girls as well. There's several forms of the name Yeshua in Hebrew. One of them is Yehoshua, which is where we get our modern name Joshua from. And they all essentially mean the same thing. Yeh is a, is a reference to Israel's God, his personal name, Yahweh. So the yeh there represents Yahweh. It means God. And the second part, Shua, means to rescue or to save. And so embedded within Jesus' name is this, God saves. This is what the name Jesus means. God saves. 
Now, here's what's so interesting. The angel gives Jesus this name and then gives this purpose for the name, for he will save his people from their sins. Wait a minute. Only God can save his people from their sins, right? It's all over the Old Testament. Salvation is the Lord's, David writes in Psalm 3. Jonah would write, deliverance or salvation belongs to the Lord. Isaiah himself would write uh, from the Lord, I, I am the Lord and besides me, there is no savior. But Jesus is, or rather this angel is saying to Joseph, name the boy God saves for he will save his people from their sins. Okay, Only God saves and forgives sin, right? Mm-hmm. But you're saying that Jesus will save. Mm-hmm. So who is it then? Is it God or is it Jesus? Mm-hmm. You see what Matthew is doing in this moment? Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the Son of David, according to his first line. He's the true Jew, Abraham. He's the son of Abraham. He is the God who saves. That's what Matthew wants his people to see. That's what Matthew wants his readers to see here. And then he keeps their noses and their, the, the, he keeps them embedded in their Hebrew Bibles here. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, this virgin. She will conceive, she will bear a son, and they shall call his name or they shall call his title Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, Matthew is making a massive theological claim in this moment. Are you with me? Matthew is making a massive theological claim in this moment. The God who saves is the God who is here with us. The God who saves is not, as Thomas Jefferson believed, a deist who has created and then left us on our own, but the God who saves is the God who is present, who is in the muck and mire, who is in the moment, who is in the stuff of our lives with us here. I'll quote R.T. France one more time because I think we just need to get this clear. And then I want to show you something that is so, so cool and just fires me up. Isaiah, uh, quoting R.T. France, Isaiah 7.14, this prophecy about the virgin and, and about him being called or named Emmanuel, it's seen as fulfilled not in the naming of Jesus, but in the whole account of his origin and naming. The point is not that Jesus ever bore Emmanuel as an actual name for himself, but that Emmanuel indicates his role, and his role is to bring God's presence to man. This meaning is related to that of his actual name, though, Jesus. Emmanuel is re related to Jesus in that it is sin which separates mankind from God's presence so that salvation from sin results in God with us. You see the connection. Here's one last thing that Matthew is doing in his gospel in this text this morning. Now, as we read Matthew's gospel, it can be a bit perplexing for us because Matthew was genius. He is not backwoods here in any way, shape, or form. This gospel is constructed with intent. He is a masterful author writing and weaving a complex story, all of Israel's history, back together. That's what Matthew is doing in this moment. Now, last week, I, I mentioned this idea of top and tail. Anytime you come to the Gospels or you come to uh, letters in the New Testament, oftentimes, not every time, but in most letters or Gospels or writings in the New Testament, there's this literary feature called the top and tail. The author will open with some themes in the first couple of chapters, and then he will conclude his letter or his Gospel tying back to these same themes at the conclusion of the letter or the conclusion of the gospel. So last week in the genealogy, we saw that four out of five of the women who were named in this genealogy were likely, well, three were for sure Gentiles, four, a fourth was probably a Gentile. The women who were named in the genealogy were Gentiles. They were not Jews in the lineage of Jesus. What does that mean? Matthew is beginning to open up for his people that this gospel, this, this proclamation of the kingdom of God is actually going to go 
far beyond the Jews, far beyond the Hebrews, and to the nations. And then he'll close in his gospel, Matthew would, with the Great Commission. And Jesus would commission his disciples to go where? To who? To the nations, not just to the house of Israel. There's another top and tail moment in this section that we're in right here. Flipping your Bibles to the end of Matthew chapter 28, to the very end of your scripture journal or the end of Matthew 28. I'm going to read the Great Commission to us, okay? Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. This is after his resurrection. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of who? All nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Look at this, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Who is Emmanuel? Who is Emmanuel? God with us. What is Jesus saying in the conclusion of Matthew's gospel? He will be with us. You see this moment. Now Matthew is presenting it at the beginning and also presenting it at the end here. This is the point of the story in Matthew 28 where Jesus has shown himself and proven himself after his resurrection. And the Holy Spirit has not only conceived him through Mary, but has raised him from the dead, given him life in the womb, and given him life from the grave. And now the risen and immortal Jesus commands, he gives these commands, and he also gives them with a promise to his band of disciple-making disciples. Uh, As you go to Make disciples of the people in front of you and the people in the nations. I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so in Matthew chapter 1, the rescue has begun, God with us. And in Matthew chapter 8, the rescue is a proven success. I'll be with you always. The God who saves you is the God who is with you. One last thing, and then we'll conclude. Look at Joseph's response. Go back to Matthew chapter 1. Look at Joseph's response here. This is for us this morning. Matthew chapter 1, verse 25. Actually, 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife into his home, but he knew her not. He didn't have any kind of physical relationship with her until she had given birth to a son. And what did he do? He called his name Yeshua. He called his name Jesus. He obeyed. He obeyed what the angel told him. May we follow the path, church, of this honorable man of God and do as God. Father, we love you. We recognize that you're here with your people in this place, in this moment, and we thank you for your presence. So we celebrate five years of your grace this morning. Help it to dawn and land on us. Help us to believe your son. Help us to believe the miraculous in your word. Help us to cling to you for our justification and depend on you for our sanctification as you walk us through our lives until the day when we see you face to face. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.